The Old Testament reading for today does come from Daniel chapter 3, verses 1 through 18, and then we will eventually come to Revelation chapter 13. Let's give attention to the, God, to the reading of God's most holy and inspired word. Daniel 3, verse 1, the setting is Babylon long before the coming of Christ. Then King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. A very large image. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down in worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the people heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the people's nations and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image, and whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace, and who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Let us go now to Revelation chapter 13. We will be considering verses 11 through to the end of the chapter, 11 through 18 uh, this morning. Here John, again, in his vision, after he had uh, saw the first beast rising out of the sea, now sees another beast in verse 11. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth, John says, it had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. 
It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. So far we have read God's word. We do pray that the Lord would help us to give attention to it and ultimately to apply it to our lives. I think it would be beneficial for us uh, this morning to ask the exact same questions concerning this beast that John saw rising out of the earth that we asked last week concerning the beast that John saw rising from the sea. Do you remember those questions? I'm sure you do. They're probably all very fresh on your mind. I will remind you of them. There were five of them. They were these. One, when will this beast appear? Two, who does this beast symbolize? Three, where does this beast have authority? Four, what does this beast do? And five, why does this beast do what he does? Uh, The first question is this, when will this beast whom John saw rising out of the earth appear? When will he appear? And we do not need to devote too much time to uh, this question, uh, for a good deal of time was devoted to answering this exact same question in the previous sermon concerning the first beast rising from the sea. And I do want you to remember that the beast, the one that John saw rising from the sea, was active in the world even when John originally penned. Uh, the book of Revelation. That same beast is active in the world now and will be active in the world until the Lord returns. And in other words, the, the beast rising from the sea symbolizes powers and entities that have been, are, and will be present in the world until the end of time and not just sometime in the future. And so when we consider that first beast and the question, when will it appear, we must say, actually, it has already appeared. It has been active in the world from the time of Christ's ascension to this present day, even beforehand. I will not take the time to repeat the arguments that I presented in support of this view, uh, but they would apply to this second beast as well. For the beast from the sea and the beast from the earth are contemporaries. That is the thing to be noticed. The beast from the sea and the beast from the earth are contemporaries. The beast from the earth, notice works for the beast from the sea. Look at verse 12. Verse 12 says that the second beast, the one from the earth, exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. So when will this beast whom John saw rising out of the earth appear? Well, the beast from the earth was present and active in John's day has been active in the world and will be until the end of time. That is the answer to that question. Uh, Secondly, who does this beast from the earth symbolize exactly? Who or, or what does this beast from the earth symbolize? And I think it would be helpful to remember that the first beast, 
the beast from the sea that was introduced at the very beginning of chapter 13, symbolizes political powers that persecute. Do you remember that from our consideration of the text last Sunday? That beast symbolizes political powers that persecute. This is clear from the obvious connection that exists between the sea beast of Revelation 13 and the four beasts described in Daniel chapter 7. Those four beasts symbolize successive kingdoms that would rise and fall and persecute the people of God along the way. The beast of Revelation 13 being a hybrid of all four of the beasts of Daniel 7 that signifies, therefore, not one particular kingdom, but all kingdoms that persecute through political power. This is review. I know this, but it's important that we remember it as we move on to consider uh, this second beast. The first one, though, remember, was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Uh, the original readers of the book of Revelation would have thought of Rome and the persecutions endured by Christians there. Uh, you and I might think of North Korea or the Islamic State and our brothers and sisters in Christ who suffer under those oppressive powers. The sea beast of Revelation 13 is as active in the world today as it was in the days of the early church. It symbolizes political powers that persecute the people of God. You remember that. And so we have that image hopefully uh, engraved uh, within our minds. And with that in mind, it is important to recognize that the second beast, the one that John saw rising out of the earth, is closely connected to the first that rose from the sea. Not only are they contemporaries active in the world at the same time, they are also colleagues. They are working together uh, towards the accomplishment of the same goals. They are contemporaries and they are colleagues. We are told in verse 12 again that the beast from the earth exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence. It's an interesting phrase there. Some English Bibles, maybe a Bible that you have, if you're reading from the NIV perhaps, say not in its presence, but on its behalf. The beast from the earth exercises all the authority of the first beast on its behalf. And it seems to me that this is actually the better translation uh, the words on its behalf. The Greek word refers to a position in front of or before an entity. And so it is understandable that the ESV takes the uh, route that it does and chooses the phrase in its presence. But the word might also mean to do something on behalf of someone, to go in front of them, as it were, to act on their behalf. And notice that the translators of the ESV have rendered the phrase in its presence, but they have also indicated in a footnote the possible translation on its behalf. I think the meaning is this. The second beast, the beast from the earth, carries out the authority of the first beast from the sea. This second beast that we are here now encountering works on behalf of the first beast. The first, the beast from the earth is, is a kind of minister who serves the beast from the sea carrying out its wishes. That is the connection between the two beasts that we see here in Revelation 13, the first rising from the sea, the second rising from the earth. If the first beast symbolizes political powers that persecute, the second beast symbolizes the political, religious, and economic entities that serve as agents or ministers who carry out the persecution of the church and the deception of the ungodly. Uh, these two powers really should not be very hard for us to identify in, in the world. I think it is really quite simple 
to understand the way in which these two powers, though different from one another, do indeed correspond to one another and cooperate. I, I want for you to imagine a situation where there is obvious, organized, and very systematic persecution of Christ's people taking place within a given society. You do have to imagine it because we don't experience it today. Uh, So imagine it. Obvious, organized, and systematic persecution of Christ's people taking place within a given society. I'm not talking about isolated or random or sporadic instances of persecution where an individual or a small group decides to to, to treat Christians badly for a time. But I am thinking of those instances where persecution is very deliberate, being organized by those who have real political power. I want you to think of the kind of persecution that was experienced by the Jews and many Christians too under Nazi Germany. That kind of situation is the one that I want you to think of. Think of the kind of persecution experienced by Christians under Nero and then after him Domitian and Trajan in Rome. And think of the kind of persecution endured by Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego under Nebuchadnezzar. These are all examples of obvious organized and systematic persecution motivated by those with real political power. Can you see it then in your minds? And now I want you to think of this. When persecution of this kind flares up within society, it is not Hitler, nor is it Nero, nor is it Nebuchadnezzar who carry out the acts of persecution, but their ministers do go in front of them to do their bidding and to work on their behalf. Isn't that the case? Their ministers do go in front of them to actually carry out the persecution. And it is these who are symbolized by the beast from the land. The second beast symbolizes the political, the religious, and the economic entities that serve as agents in the carrying out of the persecution of the church and the deception of the ungodly. And so do you see then how the first beast from the sea and the second beast from the land do correspond to one another? They are contemporaries. They are in the world at the same time at least from the time of Christ's ascension. I will argue that even before that, these were present in the world. But they are also colleagues. The beast from the sea represents political powers that persecute, but those powers typically remain at a distance from those they persecute. The beast from the earth represents those who get their hands dirty in the matter. They are the ones who apply the political and the religious and the economic pressure to the people of God who refuse to compromise and through these pressures deceive the non-elect, leading them away to false worship. That is what is being pictured for us, symbolized for us here in Revelation chapter 13 with these two beasts. Thirdly, we ask, where does this second beast, the one from the earth, have authority? I will not linger very long here at all. Uh, But I think it is important to see that this beast from the land, just like the beast from the sea, exercises his authority in all the earth. Look again at verse 12. It exercises authority of the first beast in its presence or on its behalf and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. Also in verse 14, we are told that this beast deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. Uh, The beast from the land does not function 
as a precise symbol, having as its referent one particular persecuting nation or one particular persecuting person, but to persecuting powers more generally and broadly, uh, the authority of this beast can be observed throughout the earth even today. Do you get it? My complaint against the literalists and the futurists is not that they say that these beasts are fulfilled in real figures and characters in the world. Uh, my complaint about the literalist and the futurist is that they push it all off into the future and say there's no representation of them now. And there is. There are representations of these beasts in the world today. They have been present since the time of Christ And we just read a passage from Daniel 3 that makes it evident that they were present even in the days of Nebuchadnezzar when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were threatened by these same powers. Fourthly, we ask, what does this beast do? What does this beast do? And we've already established that in general, the second beast acts on behalf of the first. But here, really, we are asking the question, what in particular uh, does he do? What are his methods? How does he go about uh, his mission. First of all, we should recognize that this beast does try at first to deceive men and women to abandon the true worship of God and to commit adultery. At first, there is an attempt to deceive. This, first, this beast does first try to, to deceive people into abandoning the true worship of God and to commit adultery. Notice the appearance of the second beast. In verse 11, we are told that he looks like what? He actually looks like a lamb. And again, we have here an imitation of Christ. He is a kind of, of counterfeit Christ. Do you remember that the first beast imitated Christ uh, in this way and that he appeared to have a mortal wound and yet he had recovered from it? So there was a kind of imitation of Christ on behalf of the first beast. He appeared to be resurrected just as Christ was raised From the dead, he seemed to have a mortal wound, but his mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed uh, the beast. I I gave um, some teaching on this last week that I cannot repeat here, but there was an imitation of Christ taking place uh, by the first beast. Uh, He functioned as a counterfeit Christ in regards to death and resurrection, but the second beast also imitates Christ, functioning as a counterfeit to him. This one looks like a lamb. And remember that Christ was described in chapter 5 as a lamb standing as though it had been slain, Revelation 5, 6. Now this second beast is described as a lamb. And I think we should take note of this, for something of his method is revealed to us here. When this beast does his work, he does not at first appear to be a beast at all, but he appears as a harmless lamb something gentle, something meek, something mild. So we learn something of the activity of the second beast. We learn something of his method. He presents himself at at first as something harmless so that he might lead men and women away into idolatry. Notice that this beast has two horns. I think once everything is considered, it is best to see these two horns as corresponding to the two faithful witnesses that we just encountered in Revelation 11. Uh, The two witnesses were faithful to proclaim gospel truth, even in the face of intense persecution. But as we will see, this beast uses words, 
But as he uses them, he speaks lies as a weapon to deceive. Notice that this beast speaks like a dragon. Uh, Remember that the dragon was identified in 12.9 as that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Uh, The second beast who symbolizes political, religious, and economic entities that serve as agents who carry out the persecution of the church and the deception of the ungodly on behalf of the first beast is, like the dragon, deceptive. These political, religious, and economic entities that persecute, um, they often look very nice on the surface, don't they? They have smooth speech. They do seem to care at first. They do claim to love. They do claim to offer hope. They do appear also to do real good. Uh, But when examined closely, they show themselves to be wholeheartedly opposed to God and to His people. They are like wolves in sheep's clothing. Notice that this second beast from the earth is able to perform great signs even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people and by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of or on behalf of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And so here is where things become clear to us, that this beast is a false prophet. That is what this beast is, a false prophet who utters lies. In fact, Uh, That is what this beast is called later on in the book of Revelation. Uh, In 1920, we read, And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence or on its behalf had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And so here in 1920, we have an account of the 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 judgment and destruction of these two beasts that have been introduced to us here in Revelation 13. But instead of being called two beasts, the one is called the beast, the second is called the false prophet. Uh, The same is true also in 1613 and 2010. And so clearly this beast from the land is the false prophet. He is not called by that name here, but his true nature is revealed via symbolism here in Revelation chapter 13. Clearly, he is a false prophet, and we know that based upon how he is described here in this text. The symbolism makes it plain. Uh, Notice that the beast is allowed to perform great signs. He's allowed to perform great signs. He is a counterfeit of Christ who performed great signs in his earthly ministry. Christ the prophet Here we have a counterfeit of Christ. He is also a counterfeit of the prophet Moses. I want you to remember how when the prophet Moses performed signs before Pharaoh. Do you remember that episode there in the book of Exodus chapter 7? Pharaoh, uh, after Moses had performed great signs, Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. Do you remember it? Moses put down his staff and it became a snake. And then the servants of Pharaoh did the same. And how did they do it? I really don't know. I assume it was an illusion uh, that they uh, um, produced. Uh, Perhaps there was something demonic going on and it was a real uh, act 
a real sign. But the point is that they, the servants of Pharaoh, functioned as a counterfeit to the prophet Moses. And so here, notice this, the Pharaoh in that day was a manifestation of which beast, the first or the second? The first, political powers that persecute the people of God. And yet his servants or his ministers were a manifestation of the second beast. They were false prophets who were permitted to deceive uh, the ungodly and to oppose uh, the people of God in that instance. Moses the prophet uh, was being opposed. These were false prophets performing these signs in his presence. This beast in Revelation 13 uh, is even allowed to make fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. Now, what do you think, brothers and sisters? I will not really give you a chance to answer, but uh, I want, you to, I, I, I want you to get it. And if you do get it, I, I want you to be very proud of the fact that you are now understanding how the book of Revelation functions, right? So when you hear uh, the words that this beast is even made, allowed to make fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people, what comes to mind? And my hope is that it is the contest that took place between Elijah the prophet and the prophets of Baal that is described for us in 1 Kings 18 that comes to mind. That is my hope. Do you remember that story? It's in the Old Testament. Here is where the symbolism of the book of Revelation comes from, is being drawn from. Uh, There stood the true prophet Elijah, the man of God, the true prophet Elijah. There he stood, and opposing him were 450 false prophets of Baal. An altar was erected by each, Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And a bull was sacrificed upon the altar, and the prophets... Uh, of Baal were to call upon their God, and Elijah was to call upon the true God. And the true God would be made known when the true God sent down fire from heaven to consume the altar. Do you remember that Elijah was very confident, you know? He at one point mocked the prophets of Baal. You know, maybe your God is busy. Um, actually, what is meant there is maybe he's busy in the restroom. He's preoccupied where where he's not answering your calls. And they they danced around their altar all day long and they cut themselves. I mean, they were just worked up into a frenzy, you know, in their worship of Baal. Um, But then Elijah, when the time comes for him to call upon God, he, he first soaks the altar. Do you remember that with water? So that water fills the ditch. I mean, he's very confident in his God. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and listened to the calmness that he uses. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. First Kings 18, 36 through 39. That's the, that's the episode that's in the background here of what is said in Revelation 13 concerning the beast. But notice that here, the beast is said to be allowed to make fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. The beast is said to be able to do this. What what is the meaning of this then? The meaning is that false prophets will have success in the world in the time between Christ's first and second comings. False prophets will be in our midst. They will be present and they will have success. They will be permitted to 
lead uh, many astray. What is symbolized here in the book of Revelation is said very plainly elsewhere in the New Testament. Jesus himself told his followers, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves, Matthew 7, 15, and 16. In Matthew 24, which has been quoted very often in this sermon series because it is there that Jesus speaks of how things will be in the world between his ascension and his return. Here's what he says, And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray, Matthew 24, 11. They will have success. It's going to be a, a constant feature of life in this world between my ascension and second coming. In verse 24 of Matthew 24, he says, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect, Matthew 24, 24. And so I want for you to recognize that it is those within the church who are threatened by false prophets and not just the unbelieving world. The unbelieving world is threatened, do not misunderstand me. They are kept in darkness. They are deceived and kept away from Christ. But when Christ talks about false prophets and false Christs, He actually refers to them as being in our midst, in the midst of His people, seeking to uh, deceive and to call away even the elect, if it were possible. The the false prophets then are assaulting not just the non-believing world, keeping them in darkness, but they are assaulting the bride of Christ. They are active even in the midst of us. We must be Aware of them then. I want for you to recognize this, that it's the church who is threatened by false prophets and not just the world. They arise within Christ's church seeking to deceive even those who profess faith in Christ. Listen to Peter's words. But false prophets also arose among the people, the people of Israel under the old covenant, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, 2 Peter 2, 1. And I want for you to remember, and here is where things begin to kind of all tie together, I think, and remember Christ's rebuke delivered to the church in Thyatira in Revelation 2, 18. Okay, so we have to remember those letters to the seven churches and remember the circumstances that they were in, the things that were threatening them when first century AD, right? And so there's letters delivered to them from Christ and to the church in Thyatira, Christ said, but I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. And so do you see it, brothers and sisters, that this church, Thyatira, in 90 AD perhaps, had already been compromised By the second beast. The second beast had already done its work in that church. So why do you think then we have an image of the second beast in Revelation 13? It's so that the Christians in Thyatira might read it and say, not, I wonder when this beast will appear. Certainly he is not here today. But rather, oh yes, we have been guilty here. We have have given in to the pressures of this beast But now Christ is showing us his true nature. He looked like a lamb to us at first, but really 
He has two horns that threaten us, and truly he is a beast, a false prophet. Do you see how the letter works, brothers and sisters? The letters written to these churches uh, were very direct, but here we have the things that even they were struggling with being symbolized before us in the rest of the book of Revelation. And so notice that false prophets and false teachers have always threatened God's people. They are able to lead people astray into false worship. They are able to deceive men and women to commit idolatry, that is, to worship falsely. Uh, To speak very bluntly with you, Christians today, I am afraid, are very gullible and naive to the threat of false teaching within the church. They assume, I think, I find this often in our culture, they assume that if a man is called pastor, then he is to be trusted. If he reads a few words from the Bible in his sermon, then what he says must be biblical. If he is funny or eloquent or hip, then he is to be listened to, right? And so many who claim to be Christ followers today do follow men who teach what is false, following them like dumb sheep going to the slaughter. We have a problem with naivete in our culture that needs to be addressed. And how can we know then whether a man be true or false? How can we know? And the clear answer is this. We have God's word. The man, whoever he be, is to be tested by God's word. Does he say what God has said? Does he teach God's truth? Does he order the church and his ministry according to God's directives? Does he himself meet God's qualifications? Or has he gone his own way, having decided for himself what he ought to do and say in his ministry? So men are to be tested by God's word. It is the standard for us. And if the man fails to say what God has said, then he is falling short in his calling. If he says what God has not said, then he is to be considered a false teacher. We are to beware of these. I want you to consider the task that God gave to the prophet Ezekiel long ago. Ezekiel, uh, the true prophet ministering under the Old Covenant, was to confront false prophets in his day. There were false prophets in Israel in that day, many of them. And Ezekiel, being a a true prophet of God, was called by God to, to say, Uh, certain things to them. Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel. Imagine that calling. Your job, Ezekiel, is to prophesy against those who call themselves prophets within Israel, who are prophesying and say to those who prophesy from their own hearts, hear the word of the Lord. So what was the essence of a false prophet in in Israel? It was this, that they were prophesying. But where, where did the prophecy come from? Did it come from God? Was it something that God had said? Was it a revelation from God that they were declaring? No, but instead the prophecy that they were uttering came from within them. They had decided what was best. They had decided what they ought to say. The text goes on. God rebukes the false prophets saying, They have seen false visions and lying divinations. They say, declares the Lord, when the Lord has not sent them, and yet they expect Him to fulfill their word. Have you not seen a false vision and uttered a lying divination? Whenever you said, declares the Lord, although I have not spoken. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, you have uttered falsehood and seen lying visions. Therefore, behold, I am against you, declares the Lord God. I think there are many in our day who say, thus saith the Lord, 
and then proceed to say what the Lord has not said or fail to say what he has said. And brothers and sisters, we must beware of, uh, the, of, of all of this as it is portrayed here by the beast from the sea uh, and the beast from the earth who comes to us as wolf, as a wolf in sheep's clothing, to deceive those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived, Revelation 13, 14. Uh, Secondly, concerning this beast, we should recognize that when the beast is unable to, through deception, persuade men to abandon the true worship of God and commit idolatry, he does then persecute them. That is the order. At first, he tries to deceive them. Looks like that lamb speaks like the dragon deceptively. But when he is unable to deceive them, to commit idolatry, he does then persecute them. Uh, There are two forms of persecution that are mentioned in this text. The first is physical, and the second is economic. Look at verse 15. And it, the second beast, was allowed to give breath to the image of the first beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. So do you see at first that this beast is able to to give breath to the image of of the first beast? Uh, Again, it is attempting to deceive, to to call men to idolatry. But if the men will not bow the knee, if they will not commit idolatry, uh, what is the result? This second beast will then cause them to be slain. Clearly, it is the story from Daniel 3 of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that stands behind this passage that we are considering today. What does the beast from the earth do? It compels the earth dwellers to make an image of the first beast, the beast from the sea who symbolizes political powers that persecute, so so that men would bow down to it and worship it. And what did Nebuchadnezzar do in Daniel chapter 3? He set up an image of gold, so that his subjects would come to bow before it to worship it. Now, please understand that when Daniel 3.1 says King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, it does not mean that King Nebuchadnezzar made the image of gold himself. You do understand that, right? I doubt that Nebuchadnezzar got his hands dirty at all in the construction of that image. Uh, No, his administrators clearly carried it out. And they also did not build the statue themselves, but compelled the people of that land to build it. And so you do see that Nebuchadnezzar was a manifestation of the beast from the sea and his officials, the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces, Daniel 3, 2, were a manifestation of the beast that John saw rising from the earth. They were the ones who saw to it that the statue was built, and they would be the ones to see to it that the statue was worshipped by all who lived in Babylon. So let us consider again the beast from the earth of Revelation 13. What does this beast do after the image is erected? It was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. This also echoes the situation in Daniel 3, doesn't it? Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, and the counselors, the treasurer, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald, listen, and the herald proclaimed aloud, 
You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trike on the bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. You see that Revelation 13 and Daniel 3 do perfectly correspond to one another. The second beast causes an image to be built in honor of the first beast. The second beast has the ability to give breath or voice to the image, compelling men to bow and worship. And if they will not, they are to be slain. They are to be slain. If the image in Daniel 3, the image of Nebuchadnezzar, if it were alive, if it were truly a God worthy to be worshipped, then it should speak for itself. Don't you agree? But it was no God at all. It was merely the creation of man, and therefore it was dependent upon a man, its creator to speak for him, the herald. Uh, One of Nebuchadnezzar's most trusted ministers, no doubt, proclaimed aloud, you are commanded, O people, when you hear the sound of the music, to fall down and worship this image that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And what was the threat? Whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And so the beast from the earth of Revelation 13 symbolizes this kind of power. It symbolizes those political, religious and economic entities that serve as agents who carry out the persecution of the church when the faithful refuse to enter into idolatry and abandon the true worship of God. Notice that this beast uses not only physical persecution, the threat of it, or the carrying out of it, but also economic sanctions in its quest to nudge men and women towards idolatry. Look at verse 16. Also, it, the second beast, causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can do what? Buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. Uh, Friends, the mark on the right hand or the forehead is not to be taken literally. And if you are surprised by this, you have not been paying attention so far. This is a symbolic book. Uh, This is not a physical mark, but it is symbolic. The mark on the right hand or the forehead indicates ownership. It symbolizes that. It indicates ownership and allegiance. For one to take the mark of the beast, one must pledge allegiance to the beast, bow and worship before it, and confess it as Lord. Remember this, that those who pledge allegiance to Christ, those who bow and worship before Him, confessing Him as Lord, have been marked by Him. They are the ones who are sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel, Revelation 7.4. And I want you, if you have your Bibles open, to just turn over to chapter 14, verse 1, just a couple of verses later. It is no accident that immediately after the mark of the beast is mentioned in 13.18, we read these words. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, with him 144,000, who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And certainly, this is not to be taken literally either. Do you and I have God's name tattooed on us anywhere? Do we have any physical mark that identifies us as God's people? Certainly, we would say, uh, no. 
We do not have any literal mark, but here's something symbolic is taking place. We belong to God and to Christ. We have bowed before Him as Lord, and we will bow before no other. We belong to Him only, and to Him we offer up our worship. All who are of the world, who trust in the world, who bow before Caesar, as it were, saying, Caesar is Lord, have taken upon themselves the mark of the beast. They already have it. They already have it. Everyone not in Christ, everyone of the world who thinks that this world is the only thing worth living for, they already have this mark of the beast upon them, though you might not see it with your physical eyes. We take the mark of the beast when we pledge allegiance to him and when we refuse to follow after God and the Christ. Notice that it is only those who have the mark of the beast who are allowed to buy and sell. Uh, The mark of the beast, listen carefully here, please. Though it is not a literal physical mark, but symbolic and spiritual, may from time to time manifest itself in physical and tangible ways. Do you understand what I'm saying here? It is not necessarily a physical mark. Those who have given their hearts to the world, those who have given their hearts uh, to, to the gods of this world, already have this mark upon them, though it is not physical. But from time to time, the mark might take on a physical or tangible character. Uh, there is evidence, for example, that during the reign of Decius, a Roman emperor who reigned in 249 AD, and Diocletian, a Roman emperor who reigned in 303 AD, that certificates were issued to those who were loyal to the emperor and participated in the required rituals of the imperial religion. Do you understand what was going on in those days then? The citizens of Rome were required to come and to offer up worship to the emperor. They were were required to offer a pinch of incense on the altar. And in these days, uh, those who were faithful to do so would be given a certificate. And it was very dangerous not to have a certificate. Many were not allowed to buy or sell. Many were in prison. Some were even put to death. So you see there in those days, uh, the mark of the beast, if you will, did take on a kind of physical uh, dimension uh, to it. Uh, And you could see how this sort of thing would rise up within society from time to time. Uh, I do remember a brother from Turkey telling me that the driver's licenses uh, had a little indication on them uh, concerning which religion you were. Were you Muslim or were you non-Muslim? Were you Christian? Were you some other uh, religion? And in certain places, at least, it was very difficult to get a job if your driver's license did not say Muslim on it, you see. And so there we have another kind of physical and tangible manifestation of this mark of the beast. Uh, Whether that is true in Turkey today, I do not know, Um, but it is an example of it nonetheless. I do find it almost amusing, and not really amusing, uh, to watch Christians who hold to the futuristic and literalistic interpretation of the book of Revelation freak out when there is talk of a new payment method involving a chip implanted in the skin or some such thing. Do you know what I'm referring to here? I think there are many who, when they hear of it, say, that's the mark of the beast. And, of course, that sort of thing has been said over and over again about all sorts of things. Um, That's the mark of the beast there. Do not take it. Well, no, not exactly. Um, It may just be a payment method, and you could decide for yourself whether you want to participate if that thing ever comes uh, to be. It may just be a payment method. It may just be an advancement in, in technology, but you can see also how that 
sort of thing, a chip embedded in the skin, could be used as a kind of mark of the beast so that men and women are not allowed to buy and sell unless they have it. And in order to get it, you must bow the knee before some, some emperor figure or you must denounce Christ. But truth be told, that sort of thing could be done in any society no matter the level of technological advancement. In verse 18, we have the number of the beast revealed to us. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Last week I mentioned in passing that this number might refer to Emperor Nero, who was notorious for his mistreatment of Christians who died in 68 AD. And this theory is based upon the method of assigning numerical value to the Hebrew letters of Nero's name. And when you add them up, they equal 666. Do you understand the theory here? So here you have Nero's name in Greek, but when you convert it to Hebrew and assign the proper numerical values to each number, they add up to 666. And I do find it interesting, uh, but to be honest with you, I wish to step back away from this view a little after considering it more carefully. If the number 666 does indeed have a reference to Nero, I think it is probably, probably of secondary significance. A much more straightforward interpretation of this number involves seeing it as, as um, the number of sinful and fallen man, a number that communicates total and complete imperfection, imperfection. Uh, the number which communicates completion or perfection in the scriptures, and especially in the book of Revelation, is the number seven. Uh, the number of God and of his Christ would then be, if we were to give a number to it, seven, seven, seven. Here we would have a, a trinity of sevens, if you will. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, seven, seven, seven. Perfect and complete, holy and every way. But the number of the beast, we are specifically told, is the number of man or the number of imperfection repeated three times over. We have here then a trinity of sixes, a trinity of imperfection. And it should be recognized that these three figures have been introduced to us so far who oppose God and his people, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. And how are we to identify them then? Are they to be trusted in? Are they to be followed after what is being told to us here in the book of Revelation? You will be sorely disappointed if you follow after them, for they fall short in every way. They cannot bring you life. They cannot bring you comfort. They fall short in every way. They are, in fact, a false trinity who seek to deceive men and women to worship them instead of God. They are not to be worshipped. Only God, the triune God, is to be Worship. The number 666 is meant to impress upon the reader just how foolish it is to go the way of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. You'll be sorely disappointed with what you find there. They are incomplete and imperfect. They are creatures of God and not the Creator, who in six days made all things in heaven and on earth, and on the seventh day did enter into his holy rest. And so do not take this mark, friends. Do not take this mark upon you. And do not take it upon you, and how would you take it upon you, except by turning from the worship of the one true God to the worship of idols. Worship the Creator only and not the creation. And this calls for great wisdom, the text tells us. The fifth and last question is this, why does this beast from the earth do what he does? It is because he is satanic. He is a minister of the first beast who is a minister of the dragon himself. Brothers and sisters, we must not be 
deceived. I have a few remarks concerning application before we close. First of all, I think it is right to repeat some things said last week, that we should give thanks that we do not live under persecution, that organized, systematic kind of persecution that Christians from time to time do endure. We should give thanks to God for that. And when we give thanks to God for that, we should also uh, use the freedom that we do have in this country for good and not allow it to, to, to lull us into a, a sense of complacency. Do, do you understand what I'm saying here? Let us rejoice that we can gather here freely without the fear of being dragged away to prison or without the fear of being hindered from being able to buy food for our family or to have employment. We should be thankful that we do not fear execution because of our worship of God, that we can meet in the open and in public and not have to hide uh, in private places. Uh, But that can also lead to complacency, and I pray that it would not, but that we would use the freedom we have for the furtherance of the kingdom of God. Secondly, I do want to urge you once more to pray for those who are persecuted in this very systematic way around the world. There are many who live under situations uh, where they are in fear of their lives because of their worship of Christ. Let us pray for them. And then, lastly, I would want to emphasize this. Though we are not under persecution, we should notice the presence within our culture of this dragon as he does seek to deceive. This second beast, rather, not the dragon, but the second beast is present in our culture in seeking to keep non-believers in deception and also seeking to deceive those who are even a part of the church of Christ. I am afraid that already many have abandoned Christ after experiencing this pressure. Can you feel it the way that I feel it in this culture as a Christian? Do you feel the cultural pressure to to kind of back away from complete devotion to Christ? Do you feel the pressure that comes from the culture uh, to, to not speak of Christ salvation through faith in him alone it it is very great it is immense i think there is tremendous pressure upon the church there are tremendous pressures that actually come upon pastors within churches i want you to understand that and it is a strong pressure it is a real temptation for for pastors and for christians to say you know what i really want to be liked by the world i really want for the world to approve of me i really want to taste of the luxuries of this world. We want to have the things of this world, don't we? And sometimes uh, pastors and Christians alike will begin to compromise the faith in order to have it, to have that respect, to have the things of this world that look so appealing on the surface. But brothers and sisters, it is not worth it. It is not worth it. These things that we see that look so appealing on the surface are empty within They're empty within. These dragons and the beast uh, from the earth and the sea, uh, they they, they might seem uh, powerful and persuasive at first. They might seem as if it would be better to follow them instead of the triune God. But at the end of the day, and we will eventually come to it in the book of Revelation, they will be destroyed and cast into the lake of fire at the word of Christ, and they will come to nothing. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the vividness of the book of Revelation. Uh, These images should stay with us forever. Lord, may we truly understand what they mean. Lord, do give us wisdom 
Uh, The text said in verse 18, this calls for wisdom. So give it to us, Lord, that we might be able to truly identify where it is that the evil one is at work, that we would not be led astray at all, but that we would remain true to Christ. Help us as individuals, Lord, Christians following after you, but also help us as a congregation that we would stay true to you for many generations to come and not compromise the truth of the gospel. We pray also for the churches that we are in association with. Would you help them, Lord? to stay true to the faith and to not compromise. Though the pressures may become very great, Lord, may our faith be true. We say this in the name of Jesus Christ, all to His glory, honor, and praise. Amen.